This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by The Witness, a Black Christian Collective. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. Follow at your own risk. And joining me, as always, is the president of The Witness, the man, the myth, the legend, the best-selling author, Mr. Blue Check Verified himself, Jamar Tisby. What's going on, bro? I need to embarrass you right now. No, do not do that. I don't know what you're about to say, but don't do it. It's a good kind of embarrassment. It's like it's like it's like the embarrassment that humble people feel when they get compliments. So, like when you read the Bible, one of Solomon, when he was able to ask God for any gift, he asked for what? He asked for wisdom. Wisdom, bro. And so, you know, this is a spiritual gift, and it's sort of amorphous. Like, what is like who has the gift of wisdom or whatever? And when I think of that. I think of Tyler Burns. Bro. It's wild, man. Look, if I can say without a doubt that humanly speaking, from the time you came on to the witness to the podcast, most of what's good that's been associated with the witness or past the mic uh since you came on, you can draw a direct link to the wisdom that you shared. And so whether that's our response to something wild someone else has done. The topics that we cover, particularly on the podcast, the people we've brought on board as far as the team on The Witness, we have inc- we have an incredible team. Um, only person been here is longer than you is Bo, who's who's also an award winning, you know, award winning producer. Amazing. Incredible wisdom there, too. But it just strikes me because you a young cat. Like you, 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 you young compared to me and some other folks. And you have wisdom beyond your years that I can only recognize as a godly Holy Spirit thing. So like a lot of people ask me for input and advice nine times out of 10. It's like, you need to talk to Tyler. So thank you all for, for coming to me and asking me for input and whatnot, but you need to, you need to definitely look to Tyler and you need to pay this man because what he has got is honestly priceless and so I'm just because no, I got you, two man. kids because I got one. Cool. I got a one year old yeah, and I no. got another baby on the way. Do they know That's that? Why. Have we announced that on the podcast even? <laughs> I, maybe. I don't know. We'll talk about it today. But, bro, okay. that's crazy. Word. That's Yeah, 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 yeah. man. Thank you. No, Thank it's you, for real. It's for real, though. Yeah. I mean it from the bottom of my heart. I'm thankful that God sort of divinely put us together and what you bring to the table. It really is beyond sort of material estimation. And I think it's a gift. I really do. I think it's a gift. And and you've been able to cultivate it and use it well, certainly in this ministry, but also at your church and within your family. So it's a sight to behold, bro. It's a sight to behold. So just take that, receive that. I receive it, man. I'm I'm working on it. I'm working on receiving stuff that people say positively. So I'm going to put it to practice right now and say, thank you, brother. That means a lot. (laughs) Word, word, word. So I have to say also, as we talk about the witness, we always say that we are a black 
Christian Collective. So before I get into today's conversation, do want to make an announcement that we are releasing another podcast. And by the time you guys hear this, it will have already been on iTunes and Spotify. I'm talking about Combing the Roots with Ali Henny. She's amazing. Um, Ali is such an important voice on so many different topics. Ali has sharpened and challenged us privately so much beyond words. And we cannot wait for you to hear more of her insights in the season one of this amazing podcast, Combing the Roots. Go to iTunes and Spotify right now. Right now, you're already in the podcast app. <laughs> so go right now and click subscribe. And her podcast is already charting because that's what we do here. That's how we do it. Okay. Just it to let you know. It's already charting. It's, <laughs> it's already back. charting. It hasn't even come Don't out of this recording. Yes. Cool. Good. Go. Yes. Do not get left behind. Listen you need to, to black listen. women. Yes. Trust black women. Listen to black women. Ali, we love you. We're so excited for what God is going to do and continue to do in you. And man, she's so much bigger. And this is the thing. It's not because of the witness. Like It's just because her insights are amazing. Like her, her, her intellect is amazing. So it's not because she hooked up with us that now because of that, she's charting. She's charting because she has her own audience. You know. like, <laughs> so I'm just we saying, when I say this is what we do here, I mean black folk. I mean black Christian folk. When we put our excellence, we chart. So that's PTM, that's Troops Table, that's Combing the Roots, that's everything that's connected to black Christians doing it big. So shout out to Ali, man. Anything else you want to add? I mean, just subscribe, rate, review. I mean, listening is great, but if you subscribe, you rate and you review, that puts, uh, that elevates the visibility. So a very small justice action, take action and subscribe, rate and review yes. to that. So yeah. So getting into today's conversation, Jamar, I feel like I need to give some framing for the people. Do it, do it, do and it. And I feel like so much of our ministry is built on this idea of correcting myths and misconceptions about our people, our culture, and what we've been taught as we've grown in the Christian faith. I feel like we spent such a great deal of time recently trying to unpack the ways that we were taught certain things that have shaped us negatively and maybe that we found out are just lies, like <laughs> just flat out untruths, falsehoods. And I feel like that shaped how we've grown in Christ. And I feel like it's also shaped how we've conducted ourselves in the church and in broader society. And so I think especially before we changed our name, we were doing that, but we we're doing that more so as a pivot towards like the broader culture, the broader like majority culture Christian audience to basically say we're worthy, like <laughs> we're, we're we're acceptable, we should be at the table. But now at The Witness, we've decided to build our own table <laughs> because of that. I believe now we're dispelling myths and misconceptions for our own people so that we ourselves can flourish fully as image bearers of God and that we can walk in our gifts. And so there's so many different myths that we're talking about now. I just want so people to pause there because you said a mouthful. Yo, look, man, I just feel like our narrative, like I feel like our narrative has been hijacked for so long that we're trying to put our narrative back on the rails um, in a way that's actually back on our rails, not going in the wrong direction. And it's not to say that people weren't teaching us, quote unquote, the gospel or weren't teaching us good things about orthodoxy um, in a white evangelical sense of, of those words. Um, but I think I think it's important for us to identify what was smuggled in, 
even as we were taught things that may or may not be true, how it was smuggled in so many just misconceptions and myths. So for example, we talked about the abortion in the black community in our last podcast. We talked about, you know, as it as it deals and relates with uh, politicians and politics and we talked about racist origin of ideologies and we talked about history and we talked about denominations and we talked about so many different things. And I feel like they all revolve around this idea of myths and misconceptions and why myths and misconceptions are so harmful for people who do not control their own narrative. And so here at at PTM, what we're attempting to do is regain control of the narrative. How do we regain control of our own narrative and correct some of the things that have, have shaped us in negative ways. Does that make sense, Jamar? I know you want to be talking a little bit more that about that. Does that make great. sense? No, that's great. It encapsulates really like what we talk about. How do we choose what to talk about? And the way we choose to talk about it is reclaiming that narrative is, like you said, so much has been smuggled in uh, that was anti-Black, to be quite honest, that, that pathologizes Blackness and black culture and communities. And what we're trying to do is dismantle those myths, present a different narrative from the inside as black people and expose people, both black and white and everyone else to this different narrative that doesn't always get airtime, particularly in predominantly white Christian circles. So I think you hit the nail on the head and that's sort of a meta analysis, not just for this podcast, which is I think is gonna be case in point, um, as far as the topic that we're talking about, but but podcast as a whole. Yeah. And I, I think it's important for us to recognize that the reason why we combat these myths and the reason why we combat these misconceptions is because every time a myth is cemented and confirmed in the minds of the majority and in our minds as well as a specific culture, our entire lives have to adapt. So for example, if if there is a myth that if there is a misconception and a myth that black men are coming to to harm you, that there is the the myth of the the black assailant. Now I have to change the way that I dress and adapt the way that I dress so that I'm not threatening. <laughs> right? Yes. So it, it's like that's that's very simple. So now a hoodie can get us killed. Mm. Now uh, our physicality makes it seem like we're demons and monsters, um, which are some of the words that we use in, in relate in relation to Mike Brown. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, he was like, he's like, he's like this monster. He's a grown man. Tamir Rice. Oh, he's a, he's bigger. He's a grown man. So it's like now we have to adjust even living and adapt to that broader conception of society, and so that plays itself out in in church circles as well, because now we have to go along and counter the misconceptions that have been confirmed. Oh, listen, I know y'all probably ain't used to hearing doctrine from us because we got our churches. We don't preach doctrine. We just got a whole bunch of emotion. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on. Hold on. Wait, what? <laughs> like, it's these myths and misconceptions that we believed and now it changes. Now we think our emotions are bad. And now we think that our theology should should only have cognitive and not emotive characteristics mm. because of the fact that someone said, y'all just don't preach the gospel. You're preaching the gospel at your own church. Then we wouldn't have these issues. Mm. So anyway, <laughs> we could go on and on there. Myths and misconceptions. And one of the myths that I want to talk about for a number of different reasons, but it's a myth that just won't seem to die 
And it's this myth of the black absentee father. And before we get into it, I do want to have a couple of disclaimers. I feel like we should be precise and I feel like we should clearly articulate, especially for those who are going to be triggered by this topic, and I mean our black audience in particular, that we're not saying that absentee or negligent black fathers don't exist. Some of us have very close proximity to them. So that's not what we're saying. But what we are trying to dispel is the myth that absentee black fathers are the source of every ill within our community. And if we just fix that, then we would be in a better position. In other words, I'm trying to dispel the myth that the ills that we face are our fault. Like that's, that's the retort, right? So people say, we talk about injustice, we talk about police brutality, we talk about mass incarceration, we talk about gentrification, we talk about achievement gap, wealth disparities. Well, if you guys just did this, if you guys have fathers in the homes, it's always the point back. It's your fault, your fault, your fault, your fault. And so we're trying to dispel a myth that's been internalized within us. Now, that doesn't mean we'll get into challenging Black fathers and how we do that and how we ourselves have been challenged later in the podcast. So it doesn't come without accountability and community. But at the same time, this myth will destroy us if we allow it to take root deep in the soil of our souls. What I've observed is one of the things I say in The Color of Compromise, uh, racism never goes away. It just adapts. And so- In the past, you had racist tropes taking on legitimacy in different fields. Yeah, talk about that. Talk about that because you're a historian. And I, I always like to say that because it's important for you to get the credit for your expertise. Ha, appreciate it. Very hardcore. I know people despise it and they think you're being elitist, but really, you worked hard for that. You paid a lot of money. Um, to to get your PhD in, in in history, so I want to encourage people to remember your expertise. Um, Appreciate so, that. So talk a little bit about talk a little bit about the history of those type of of tropes and why that still lives in our psyche today. A lot of scholars have noticed there are patterns, um, trends throughout history. So if you look at the very early days in colonial America. A lot of the arguments for the inferiority of Black people were theological in nature. So there was honestly a time where people were legitimately debating, do people of African descent have souls like Europeans, and therefore, are they worthy enough to preach the gospel to? Because if you don't have souls, then you don't need to evangelize, because essentially what they're trying to make the case for is that Black people are just beasts, you know, one step above the apes. And therefore, you don't need to evangelize them, let alone pay them for their labor or treat them equally as human beings and as fellow image bearers. Um, So that was, you know, arguing whether someone, a human being has sold sort of the most egregious form of theological racism, uh, where where even contemporaries who were racist were like, "Eh, that may be a bridge too far. But they were happy to say, well, there's the curse of Ham. And that, you know, biologically speaking, they're descended from this cursed people and a slave to his brothers he shall be. So therefore, people of African descent are relegated by God's decree to enslavement. Um, similar with Native Americans, they would they would make arguments um, for, for basically any people of color. But then as you go on in time, it transitions to biology so that the, by the mid-19th century, 
and certainly by the late 19th century, you have people arguing for the scientific inferiority of black people. And so then you get things like phrenology and people measuring cranium size and looking at lip sizes and nose sizes and brain sizes and weighing them and things like that. One of the um, uh, stories that floats around about Nat Turner, who led a, 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 a slave revolt, was that um, they decapitated him after they killed him. I think they, they killed him by hanging and they took his head and basically passed it around for science to see what kind of, you know, what was wrong with this black person that he would rebel against uh, white people. And so the racism took on biological forms to say that, you know, and, and this is where the argument about miscegenation comes in is because white people didn't, quote unquote, want to dilute the white race with bad blood, sort of like you're breeding horses. And if you get a bad strain in there, it's going to dilute the whole breed. And that's how they looked at black people. But I think more recently, it takes on the form of cultural racism. So, yep. so, so you won't talk about people being black or white. You just talk about the cultures and the pathology of a particular culture. And lo and behold, the cultures you're denigrating or saying are inferior happen to be the cultures uh, valued by black people or, or, or part right. of the black community. Yeah. Like that we're culturally remedial. Exactly. Like, so this is what I hear so much. Like all cultures aren't created equal. Uh-huh. Like all, I, I remember someone said that to me. I was like, wait, what? Like, like what are you what saying? Are you, exactly. What are you saying? Cause what you're really right. saying is these cultures that, 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 you know, people would identify with the poor or with black people or with brown people, they are somehow inferior. This is where you get all this sort of Western civilization, Western culture talk, as if it's the crowning achievement of human, uh, of human existence is, is found in Western Europe, uh, particularly in like, you know, the 16th, 17th centuries or something like that. And I just, that's culturally racist, right? Because essentially what you're doing is relegating any black and brown or poor person to an inferior type of culture when I think our theology properly understood would lead us to say there are both uh, positive and negative aspects to any culture and n- mm-hmm. no one culture is superior to another. Uh, and it's especially dangerous when cultures often fall along racial and ethnic lines. So, right. so, so by criticizing a culture and saying it's sort of inherently flawed or uh, uh, bad, you're essentially saying this people who practice that culture are inherently flawed or bad. So I think it's just a very dangerous thing. And it's, it just gets back to your point about um, these narratives that we're trying to correct and expand and uh, make, make more holistic and, and healthier. Yeah, so you've heard this idea, right? That the number one issue in the black is fatherlessness. Come on, fatherlessness. It's just the absent. And and I have to I have to be clear here. It's not just an idea that is promoted by majority culture. So it's not okay. just an idea that has white popularization. Okay. It's also an idea that has survived, kind of, and been highlighted by black people who succeed. <laughs> so black people who succeed and rise up in social status and socioeconomic class and achieve and break through the barriers, turn around and then say, well, you know the problem. The problem is this. 
And so people talk about fatherlessness in the abstract. Um, some people have experienced it personally, but then they talk about fatherlessness in the abstract. And so I think it's important for us to excavate this as fathers because you're a father, right, Jamar? Yes, proudly. So let's talk about ourselves and let's talk about how this has influenced us personally because it's influenced me. And I'm just going to tell you right now, I'm new father. I'm a new father. So I have to say that as a disclaimer. So I got a one-year-old that have another child on the way this summer. So I'm not coming at it from the expert. So if you need advice, I'm not your man. Okay. I'm (laughs) not your man for that. All I'm going to say is it has influenced me as a new father. So how has it influenced you, Jamar? Uh, like you said, it makes you respond. So the myth makes you respond, right? So, so that I'm conscious that people think as a black father who's married to his, his, his child's mother, I'm an anomaly, which shouldn't be the case, right? Like I, I shouldn't have to think about that. I'm just, I'm just doing what millions of people do, raising their kids. But because of this myth, you you feel like you're an exception or that you have to be the sort of the model father, that you can't make any mistakes or anything. You can't just be a normal parent because it might feed into the negative myth that's already out there. And so it just sort of makes you hyper-conscious of mm. your role as a Black father in a way that I don't think is very helpful at all because it, it just sort of makes you freeze up. And, and and worry about everything you're doing or not doing. Um, plus, it's just added to the whole dynamic of race, right? To where the the ways that I raise my son can have a direct impact on his on his life and well being. Uh, because if he says the wrong thing, does the wrong thing, and I've taught him wrong, then it's not just sort of a youthful mistake or indiscretion. Like his life could be on the line. In so many instances, mm-hmm. we've seen this. Um, so the stakes are just so much higher, I think, because of this myth of absent black fathers, coupled with the myth of, um, you know, white supremacy, racial superiority, and particularly mm-hmm. as I raise a son, um, like you mentioned before, the myth of, you know, black male threat in the society. Right, right. Yeah, like, man, this is crazy. This is really personal. <laughs> I think this is good for people to hear us get personal um, <laughs> to an extent, to an extent, to an extent. Uh, so when my wife was pregnant, I remember we sat down after an ultrasound and we had told people that we wanted to be surprised. So we didn't know the gender um, of the baby until delivery. And so that was a really special moment um, because it was crazy. They were like, we want you to stand up because my, my wife had an emergency C-section um, black pregnancies matter. Yeah. It's a whole bunch of other stuff yeah. that goes into that. Go listen to Truth's Table about that. But so they were like, we want you to announce the the sex of the baby. And so they're like, you know, stand up. And so I stood up and I couldn't see because the umbilical cord was blocking. What? <laughs> so yeah, so it was like the umbilical cord was blocking. So I was like, and then she moved the umbilical. I was like, yo, it's a girl? Like I said, it was crazy. <laughs> like that's exactly how I said it. Everybody starts laughing. And then I just break down, you know, crying. Wow, and I had this thought before when we had received an ultrasound when my wife was pregnant that the child was going to be a girl, and so I felt this, and I told my wife I felt this deep 
dread hmm. of raising a black woman. Mm. Because I know how society treats black women. Yeah. And I felt this deep sense of fear. And, you know, she was like, yeah, you know, don't feel fear. Like, we're in this together. Like, we were talking back and forth about it. And I said, I can't really put it into words, but I feel like there's just an added responsibility for me as a father. Yeah. And I feel like so much of Black fatherhood is driven by the undercurrents of guilt and fear. Hmm. Guilt for the skin that we're in and fear that this skin will bring some form of violence to our doorstep. Yeah. And I feel that consistently. So much so to the point to where it's like you sense, like you mentioned earlier, it's this hypervisibility, this hypervisibility that when I step into a space, when I go to a doctor's appointment and it is the full family unit there, that this is just a, a moment of importance. <laughs> like, like we're hyper visible. Like people are like, oh wow, mm-hmm. like he's here. Like, yes, I'm here. <laughs> like almost a sense that people are judging based upon my very presence, like the presence that I I hold in yeah. the room. Yep. And I think the hyper visibility has led a lot of men. I didn't feel this until I held my daughter for the first time. I, I say in an article I wrote on the witness. Um, about Black Panther and fatherhood, that when I held my daughter for the first time, I could never, I, like, I was like, I can't understand why men run away from their kids. But then I was like, I can totally understand why men run that. away from their kids. Yep. Like, it was that duality of, I would never leave her and I'm so scared. Yep. And it, when you hold your child for the first time, you feel that. And it's the thing, it's the hidden it's a hidden thing people don't talk about, which is the idea that your hypervisibility in some ways to people with trauma who have endured a lack of fatherhood in their lives to black men can crush them. And I've had many conversations with black men who don't know what to do. And it's like, well, I'm not trying to be negligent. I just don't know what to do. So I run. I don't know what to do. So I just, I panic. And we don't give excuse. That's just context. It's not yeah, excuse. It's yeah. just context. And I think sometimes we don't understand how how pervading these myths over ex- like gives adds burden where none should be. That's right. That's right. Because I think that's crucial, right? Because there's a sense in which every father has felt the anxiety of being a father, right? Of raising a child to maturity. And trying not to mess it up, right? Like that's that's every parent's hope. Just don't let me mess it up. Um, but when you take all of that, all of the pressure it is simply to raise a human being, uh, particularly in the Lord, right? In, in in you're trying to train a child up in the way that he or she should go. When you add on racism and white supremacy and the myth of black fatherhood to that, it's just additional burden. Right. Like it's additional burden above and beyond already the sort of perils and anxiety of being a parent in the first place. And this is one of the things, one of the effects of living in a racist society, which I like how you said it's, it's, it's hyper visibility. And, and so that means every mistake, every misstep, every anxiety, every whatever is amplified, is, is magnified and made bigger. And so you become 
as a black father, not just the parent of a child or children, you become the representative of black fathers everywhere. So that what you do speaks to how people interpret black fatherhood writ large. You're not just Tyler yeah, the dad. Yes. I'm not just Jamar yes. the dad. You're a black father, which is a whole label that represents an entire community. Yeah. So how have you interacted with the flip side of this conversation? So we're talking about the the presence of hypervisibility. We're talking about guilt. We're talking about fear. And, and then also invisibility as well, right? So this is kind of the how broader culture seeks to erase our existence um, and seeks to color our existence to fit their narrative one way or the other. How would you say you've inter- interacted with the flip side of this? And that is, do you have interaction, even whether it's within your family or within your extended friend group or in your role in education with absentee fathers and with fathers who, with the the impact of children who have been abandoned by their fathers or rejected? Like, do you have any sort of of history with that? And, and how has that shaped you? Yeah. So just sort of going back to correcting the myth is the norm in my experience has been married black fathers. <laughs> like mm-hmm. the growing up, there was really never a, a close in terms of familial alternative because my grandparents were married, my parents were married, siblings, etc., um, close friends, all that. Like the norm for me has been black fathers very present, active, loving toward their children. And so this myth of sort of the absent black father or black fatherlessness in a sense had to be taught. Now I did come into very intimate contact with with these perils as a teacher. And so uh, many, many, many of my children, um, the, the students that I had, they, their parents were not married. Um, which, which again, like we got right. unpack that's, that, that. That's, yeah, you have to, you have to unpack <laughs> what, that, what that means. Because that, so, so for people that's like, oh, that's absentee. Right. Like, no, it's not. No, it's not. Not at all. Because unmarried and absent are two different things. So a lot of my kids, their parents were not married, but both of their parents were active in their lives, especially where I am, which is a rural environment. Like it's just a small town. Everybody knows everybody. You're, you're involved. You're, you're, you're engaged. You're interacting. Um, almost, almost geographically, you're bound to do so. But in general, that's been a lot of people's experiences where, you know, they, their parents may not be married, but it's not like they don't know their parents. So I think, that's a part of the right. myth that gets perpetuated is that, well, if you're unmarried, then clearly, you know, one or the other parent, in, in particular, a black father, is not going to be involved. And, and I think there's that myth exists because it is hard for Western individualistic society yes, yes, to yes. grasp the village. Come on, come on. And to grasp how important it is that a community raises children. We got to talk about that. And so I think it's really important. Like I'm not, again, we're not saying that as, you know, fathers and mothers that we're, we're talking about breaking up, you know, the importance of marriage and the importance of, of a family and all that. That's not what we're talking about. We have deep convictions for that culturally, sociologically, and also theologically. But I think people just, it is hard for them to conceive of the idea that, 
the father is a part of the village, that it's not just one person who's the oracle for all things child in many communities, but it's also the presence of of mentors and teachers and I'm going to say youth pastors and <laughs> guidance counselors and barbers and coaches and and it's it's the community yes. and that the father is also a part of the community he is he is a primary part of that community but it's a part of the village that also raises that child and so what i have found less of is i have found less of of fathers being disconnected from the broader village that raises the children that they um that they have fathered right rather than them being completely absent from the picture. I've seen a lot of fathers who are within that village, even if they're not present within the home. Now, there, there are numerous reasons, there are numerous ideas um, that can be excavated as to why they're not present within the home in a married relationship and all those types of things, which is something that we push people towards, something that we believe in. But at the same time, I, I just haven't seen a ton of fathers in my personal experience as a pastor who have completely disconnected from the village itself. Right. Right. right and right. like, I just don't care. Yeah. 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 Like if your only impression of black fatherhood is, is what you see on Hollywood or a TV series, then you probably need to expand it. Right. And even though, even though there are some very positive expressions of that now on, on television, that is partly a reaction to the myth of the absent black father. And but can I speak to that? Because even, even then, so many of the positive portrayals. This is this is not this is just me. This is just Tyler <laughs> talking. I'm not saying this is just like, oh, well, everybody thinks this. But so many of these positive portrayals are in the context of comedy. Yep. So it's like it's almost like a minstrel show. Like, mm. yeah, like Black Fathers is that <laughs> like, yo, I don't laugh that much. <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, my jokes ain't ain't hitting like that. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, I'm not saying I don't have joy. I'm just saying like, yo, I don't know what y'all thought this was. Yeah, it's always going to be huge. It kind of romanticizes this idea. See, why can't you be like so-and-so? Why can't you be like Anthony Anderson on Blackish? Like, why can't you be like, like, why can't you be like Carl Winslow? You know, why can't you be like that other guy who we, you know, know. He shall not be named. Um, Yes. Yeah. Like, why can't we, why can't, why can't you be like that? And it's like. That's not how it really is. Yeah, it's very emotional kind of portrayal. So magical Negro, let's just call it what it is, magical Negro. Exactly. Um, But to the point, right? Like if if your only conception of black fatherhood is what you see on television or a screen, then that ain't hidden. That's not right. But what you bring up is so important is the idea of the extended family, which is what I saw up close and personal um, with my students is that, you know, Obviously, they all had a biological father. And depending on the kid, depending on the family situation, there were different levels of involvement. But for most, there was involvement. So like the the completely absent black father, that would be a rarity. But 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 even then, the definition of family was so much bigger than what tends to get portrayed through like white Christianity in America. So just to just to nerd out for a second. There's a book called The Way We Never Were by Stephanie Mm. Kuntz, C-O-O-N-T-Z. 
and I'm still working my way through it. So I'm not going to just give like an unvarnished recommendation, but it is really provocative because it was originally published in 1992, revised a couple of times, latest time in 2016, and it really has stood the test of time. And so what she's doing is debunking the myth of the leave it to beaver family. Right. So Ooh. so the father who goes out to work, the mother who's a homemaker, these happy children at home, all this stuff. And so what she calls, quote, the male breadwinner marriage is the least traditional family in history is what she says. Ooh. So what what often gets promoted in conservative Christian circles is this idea of the nuclear family where the father works full time, makes enough money that the mother doesn't have to work and she spends her whole time racing the kids and what Coons, who is who I believe is a sociologist um, is arguing is that that's that's the least traditional family arrangement in history much more common especially in non-western cultures which tend to be less individualized more communal in nature there's just the idea of the extended family and also we can see this in the United States with with black communities the idea of fictive kinship so, you know, black folks will always talk about, well, that's my cousin. It's not even really biologically related, but your families are so close that you just take on the title of extended family. And so maybe you heard the term play club, play cousin. And that's the same thing. It's, it's like, well, we're, we're just so down like that, that we're family. You know, they can walk in the house, open up the fridge without asking, you know. Invited to the family reunion. Yeah, exactly. It's, and and it, yeah. it goes beyond biology. And then, of course, there's all these other arrangements of, you know, grandparents, uncles, aunts helping to raise children who, who, who aren't biologically there, but they're related somehow in the extended family. And again, like you're saying, we encourage mothers and fathers to stay together, to be married, to raise children together. 100%. But 100%. yeah, but also recognizing that this idea of the nuclear family is sort of the ideal slash only family arrangement is a very sort of contemporary Western, you could even say white, or at least middle class and above kind of conception of what family looks like. And I just think we need to take these sort of cultural context and also racial context into into account because i'll say one more thing the black family in america is a miracle we've said that before yeah. and it deserves reiterating because the original family separation policy was separating black families during the institution of slavery and so you had husbands torn from wives siblings from their siblings mothers from daughters and of course fathers from sons and black people found a way to still have families, whether that was through fictive kinships, extended families, or fighting tooth and nail for the nuclear family. And they came up with family arrangements to make it work. The fact that you and I are here is a testament to the tenacity of black people who wanted to build families. Right. And so that's just one of the things that we need to keep in mind as we, as we talk about this myth of absent black fathers. Part of what's underlying it is the idea that the nuclear family with the male breadwinner marriage is sort of the ideal arrangement or the or the main arrangement in families. I just think of so many different jobs where that just does not work. It don't work um, <laughs> for most people. So many different situations where it just it's we ain't got it like that, man. I mean, you even wish. in the Bible, right? Like you got all yeah. kind of uncles and cousins and grandparents and and it's just this web of relationships and it's not yeah. just mom and dad and kids, right? Like 
Yeah. You know, it's it's funny, man, because when I grew up, like, talking about the flip side of this issue, when I grew up, I, I knew cognitively that my parents didn't have their fathers around. Um, so my mom's father, um, you know, my grandfather on my mom's side, uh, he passed away long before um, I was born. He died of a heart attack. So I never met him. And then when I was 23, uh, my father, he had mentioned it before. His his mother died when she was 12 of cancer. Or his mother died when he was 12 of cancer. And he never knew his father. And so he knew of him, but he didn't actually like know him like personally. So when, we were tw- when I was 23, my cousin, I think it was my second cousin, um, on my father's side, he was brutally murdered. And mm. he was murdered um, in what was suspicion of a hate crime um, in Mississippi. And so it was kind of rocked everybody. And he was um, 20, I believe, real young dude, um, had a lot of promise. And so we went to the funeral. And now I remember we were standing outside after the funeral was packed. We were standing outside after the funeral. And we were just looking around. We're like, we need to go get the car. And then this dude walks up and I turn around and I was the first person to see him. He says, hey, I'm your grandfather. Wow. And it was my first time meeting him. And I didn't really know what to say. Like my brother reacted quicker than I did. Um, he's such a beast, man. He just, he reacted. So he, he just was, he took it totally in stride. Like he, he reached out his hand, he smiled. He said, it's a pleasure to meet you, you know? Um, and so he shook all of our hands. He was like, all right, love you. Bye. <laughs> okay. And bro, when I tell you, and this is why I put the disclaimer, because I know this is like deep for people. I, I tell you, I was so mad, bro. Mm. Like the fury, like the rage I felt. Like I saw what my father went through. Mm. And I was so mad, bro. Like I still to this day, I get mad thinking about it. I can't remember a time I've been more angry. Um, Because it was just the hubris, the audacity of saying you love me when you don't even know me. You know? And then bounce. And then bouncing. Like, yo, I didn't, I don't even. I don't even know your name, bro. Like real talk, I don't know his name. Wow. Um, and so I was so upset. And then you know, I talked with my father about it, and he was like, "Man, As it was the one time like he hasn't been like flowery in his answer. Huh. Like he was flowery about it when he told the story later, but he was kind of like, bro, like we all jacked up.' Wow. And I was like, hmm. And I, I just thought. <laughs> I sat back and I thought, like, I don't know anything about his story. I don't know anything about the trauma he faced. My father was born in 1958. So I don't know anything about this man who fathered him and what he faced from the external world, his father wounds, his trauma. And I was like, bro, we some, bro, we got some wounds, man. Yeah. We got some trauma. And I think it's incumbent upon all black men who are fathers to stand up and take responsibility for those things, um, to get the help that is necessary, um, to ensure that we're being faithful in the areas that we need to be, um, that even as we talk about these things, we're not, we don't, we don't completely reject an ethic of of morality, <laughs> right? Like we believe in morality, we believe in 
um, being faithful to our wives. We believe in being faithful to our kids, being faithful to our local churches, being being good neighbors, um, loving God, loving neighbor well. Um, but at the same time, man, I was just like, bro, how many men, how many black men have these cancerous sores on the inside of their souls? Yep. And they don't know how to get rid of them. And it's not just from absent fathers. Sometimes it can be from the fathers who were there. But emotionally unavailable and yeah, like it's it's tough, man, because I think I just I would love for the church to feel to feel the wounds and to process the wounds and to offer a path not just to responsibility, which is important, but to offer a path to healing and, and restoration. That's it. Yeah. It's- and, and where do we offer a path to the fathers who are who have jettisoned their responsibility, who have jettisoned their kids and their families? Is there is there is the church known as a place where you can be restored and rehabilitated and you can be healed? And we're not going to co-sign your mess, but at the same time, we are going to acknowledge there's trauma on the inside of you that by sheer existence of your body and by the bloodline you come from, there's trauma and there's stress that we can't even fully comprehend yet. We want you to see a therapist. Um, we want you to have spiritual direction. We want you to see a counselor. And I'll tell you, man, like as a as a young father, that going to therapy and having spiritual direction in my life, I I have never wept so much. Mm. Um, and I was telling one of my homies recently, I was like, bro, I have to face myself, mm. and that is scary. Because the world told the world has told us that we're ugly and we're undesirable. So when we we don't even like looking at ourselves. And so when we face ourselves, when we have to face who we are, we have to face the fact that there's trauma, we have to face our wounds. We have to, we have to, you know, open up our souls and say, there's so many scars here, there's so many issues here. And I came from a home with the father. I came from a home with two parents. There's so many issues in me. I'm like, bro, it's it that joint scares me. It's terrifying. But that in that there's healing on the other side of of the courage, the bravery to do that. And I feel like we discard and this is another thing about the statistics. Do we mention the statistics as a result and this is why I think it's a myth is we mentioned the statistics as a result with the with the tone of finality. Hmm. Like, okay, they gone. What if we mentioned the statistics as, man, what an opportunity if we if we poured money into education, if we poured money into the right spaces, if we poured money as the church into healing and provided those opportunities. And we're honest and transparent about our wounds because so many black men don't say that they're wounded because no other black man has said that they're wounded. Mm. So now you feel like there's a problem with you. Like, what if we, instead of mentioning the finality, we say this is an opportunity 
And it's an opportunity that this could be a chapter of your life that you correct in the next chapter. And there's so many men that are being discarded as statistics that are being discarded with no regard for where they've come from, with no regard for their past, their history, and the narrative that God is still writing for them. So all those things hit me really hard, bro, because I'm like, man, I didn't choose my family. I didn't choose where I was born. I didn't choose the fact that my father was a pastor. I didn't choose the fact that he stuck around. I didn't choose any of that. And so who am I to look at another person and say, man, you know what you need to do? Man, I, I, I know what I would like for you to do, but I don't know what that would cost for you. <laughs> I just want to walk with you through it. That's right. Can we walk together? Yeah. You know, and I think if more black men saw that from other black men, that beyond the numbers, they would they would feel a sense of belonging to a broader community that was finally transparent about the fact that, man, it's hard out here and we ain't got the answers, but we got each other one foot in front of the other one day at a time. God is on our side. The spirit is in us. We can do this. I mean, that's as real talk as you're going to get on a podcast. And I appreciate you opening up like that because I've absolutely felt the same way. I know there are folks listening now who have felt the same way. And what does it look like for the church, not just a particular congregation, but for the people of God to, instead of be folks who are quick to punish or shame uh, Black fathers, that the church can be a, a location of healing, um, redemption if necessary, but certainly of of wholeness for for people. And that's something we got to deeply think about, which is what's so pernicious about this myth of the absent black father or just sort of a pathology of black fatherhood, which is what this is morphed into. So, so it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, bro. Yeah. <laughs> it is. And, and we're not just statistics. Like we're human beings. And like, to discard the sort of social and institutional forces that have made healthy choices difficult for people from black fathers to black mothers, to the poor, uh, to, to all kinds of other people, like people generally want good things for themselves and certainly for their children. So yeah, yeah. when they make choices that seem detrimental to that, then it's not just like, sadism <laughs> it's 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 not a masochistic form of sort of just wanting to hurt oneself there's there's factors there there's yeah, factors. they need help bro. they need yeah, help. help them and it really let's assume they can do that on their own help them and it angers me to to hear people basically say your demographics are your destiny and that if you're born in a certain place or you're not married or xyz that you're just automatically doomed um, I think that actually ignores the humanity of people, uh, particularly when you combine it with the, the fact that racism in general diminishes and ignores the humanity of people of African descent. So these things all compound on one another. Right. And then where do we go? Like, where do you turn for hope, help and healing? It should be the church, obviously, um, but sometimes it isn't. And clearly we need to do better on that. And so I hope, you know, episodes like this, like, give people permission to feel the weight and the burden of being a black father and to say yeah, people, it's hard. People are, dynamic. <laughs> people are dynamic, man. I just, 
I just hear that so much, man. I just I hear that I hear what you're talking about so much that man, this there is a sense in which it's not saying that data is not important. It is, but there is a sense in which we like serve data so much and we we meet people and deal with them in, in abstraction. In abstract, that's the key. Because we see Oh well, well, see these factors. Mm. Well, the a lot of times I can I can tell you I can tell you what's about to happen with him. It's like no, you can't. Mm, I can think of a particular example. Yes, um, yeah, like no, you can't. Like I just that 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 bothers yes. me because I've seen far too many people in my own life. Heck, me personally, <laughs> like in certain areas, I've seen far too many people overcome overcome their own restrictions and limitations according to data that according to data they should have been in a different place but mm-hmm. they ended up mm-hmm. in a place that they're in now in ways that don't make sense but and this is this is again this is part of this part of my upbringing this part of my theology my theology is is not built on fatalism hmm. but my theology is built on hope in the sense that your your current chapter is not your last. No, there is a different you that can be can be present here. Like you can change. All right, all right, preach it, preach. <laughs> like that, the Holy Spirit inside of you is the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Don't tell me where you at right now. You can't get up. Like that's why I I hate when people start start talking about theology, start talking about sermons, start talking about stuff in abstraction. We just need to mind the depths of the text. Yes, we need to mind the depths of the text. But you know what? You, sometimes you need to point at people and say, you matter. You an image, you created in the image of God. You an image bearer. You matter. No, rise up, king. Dang. Like some people need to hear That's that. It. Some people need to be like, Mm-mm, no. <laughs> I mean, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just worthless. I'm just a worm. I'm just a, a wretched murderer. I'm just, I'm, I've heard so many things. I'm like, yeah. bro, what are you talking about? Fatalism. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like we are not like doomed people. <laughs> and when we like no like that's common grace, man. Come on, bro. Let's uh, pause it. That I just don't I don't have that mental and and that mentality drove me to a sense, you know, when I believed that about myself, when I believed about others, it drove me to be unloving towards others, but then also drove me to to be to be almost Almost so self-focused that it was a, it was this like twisted, perverted sense of hubris and pride and narcissism that I was so focused on my own issues, so focused on my own props, so focused on my own shortcomings, so focused on my own the total, totally depraved, totally brave, totally brave, so focused on that that I couldn't see who God was making me into. That I just I just had a diminished sense of self, mm. so I was just critiquing myself all the time. And it's like, man, God, thank you that you've given me something to work with. <laughs> like, man, why is our theology so, so, uh, you know, why is our theology so stale, man? Like, and I feel like certain people feel that that's what is worthy to them because they've only heard from one church tradition, only heard from one type of church, one socioeconomic background, one type of pastor. And so, yeah, like, because that pastor said it now, you're like, okay, this is faithful spirituality. And it's like, mm. Man, no, I'm gonna look at some people and say you matter. I'm gonna be mentoring some kids tonight. I'm gonna look at look at them across the table when we do our evaluation. I'm gonna say you matter. You have value. 
You have dignity. You better stop, man. You better stop me before I preach on this podcast. <laughs> I ain't stopping you. That's why I didn't say nothing. Yo, but we just need me. affirmation in much larger doses than accusation. And I think that's what mm. we're finding. It's like, I mean, most of us deep down are struggling with a sense of healthy pride, the pride that I am God's creation, that he has a purpose for me, and that all of my mistakes added up together do not outweigh his grace toward me. And that's the message that liberates people. That's the message that empowers them to change. That's the message that says to them, I'm a human being, not a statistic. And yeah. when we hear those statistics, our reaction should be, how do we change them? How do we improve them? And who's the human being behind them who needs affirmation, who's hurt, who's broken? And it needs to be loved, bro. Yeah, loved. that the body builds one another up. Like, that's our job. And, and, and to the folks out there like me, perhaps like you, um, who are just like, man, I mess it up more than I get it right as a father. I, one of the things that I constantly remind myself is presence over perfection. Mm. So, so often it's not about getting it right all the time. It's about being there. And so much of what we remember of our own childhoods and the positive things about our parents, mothers and fathers, is not the specific things that they did or they didn't do, but just the fact that they were there. And so yeah. one story from when I was grown, I was 18 and older. I was in college and I was I was I was in in uh bangle bouts. I was boxing and there there was a tournament where uh there were matches every night four consecutive nights. And I didn't live that far from home, but it was like 2 or 3 hours. And I remember that every single match, my dad drove after work from Illinois all the way to South Bend, Indiana just to be there for me. And sometimes he wouldn't even get a chance to talk to me because I would go right back to, to the locker rooms and stuff and he would have to get back home. And so he would just call and say, hey, well, I was there. And I never forgot that. It's not because he did anything or said anything. It's just because he was there. Man, bro, that's powerful. I, I, it reminds me of this story where um, it was my senior year. I was running track and it was running four by four. And I was running in front of, uh, it was the Justin Gatlin Invitational locally in Pensacola. So Justin Gatlin is an Olympic um, gold medalist and um, incredibly fast runner and sprinter. And um, and he hosts a Invitational in his hometown. Where he hosted, he used to host an Invitational in his hometown, Pensacola. And uh, back when his high school was still in existence, now they've closed down. And it was the Justin Gatlin Invitational. He was there. So I was running four by four under the lights, first leg. And anybody who knows anything about track knows that at the end is the four by four. So everyone's watching the four by four. And it was my first time running the 400 in that context because mm. I used to just be short distance sprinter, 100, 200. And right before I'm getting ready to go to the line, um, someone taps me on the shoulder and I turn around. And it's my dad. And I remember... I remember he had been doing something all day and was not going to be able to make it, but he showed up. Like he, I don't know how he did it, hmm. but he showed up. And I remember I kept telling him like the whole week leading up, I was like, man, it's cool. Like, I understand you can't make it. Like, it's totally fine. Like, don't stress yourself or whatever. And so he 
shows up like at the last minute <laughs> and he's like at the starting line. Wow. And I remember like right when I was, cause I was, I was nervous to run in front of Justin Gallup, but then I was like, oh no, I'm running in front of my father. <laughs> yep. And you know, I, I'd run in front of him before, in front of him before, but it was different. Cause it was like, yo, this matters. Like this is burns. And, and I remember I was, I leaned in and I'll never forget. He spread his legs like he, and he like leaned down and, and I'm trying not to get emotional. But he spread his legs and he leaned down and it was like he was in the he was like in the lane with me. Wow. And bro, when I tell you I ran so fast. <laughs> yeah. We actually have a picture of it. Someone took a picture of that race. It's hanging up in our house where I grew up. And it's like every when I was coming down the last hundred, and when I tell you it's like every muscle in my body, mm. like you can see almost every muscle mm. in my body. It was because my father's with me in that lane. Mm. And um, I'll never forget that. I'll never forget it. That's and I think that's that's what reminds me. Um, even when it when I'm like, man, I don't know how to how am I raising a a daughter, you know, a one year old, like what is happening, and I'm about to raise another kid, like what's going on? It's even in those moments. It's in those moments where I say, man, if I just show up. That's it. I'm gonna give a hug. <laughs> I'm gonna give her a kiss. I'm gonna play with her. I'm gonna sing her silly songs and watch some cartoons that don't make no sense. <laughs> yeah, and that's it. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's all I got. I would take you outside. Let's walk around the neighborhood, and you just gibberish and, and point at all, all the houses and yelling. But but you know it's it's a picture of godly fatherhood because one of my life verses. I think that's a cheesy phrase. But anyway, a verse I come back to often. So white evangelical. He's one you of know my it. You know it. You know, that's right. So <laughs> I got them too. I got life chapters too. Like it's all good. We doing quiet time. Today, so. <laughs> Joshua 1.9. Um, yes, yes. He says that Joshua be strong and very courageous, but he gives strong. a promise. I'm with you wherever you go. And it's that oh promise of God's presence, right? Which I say in the Old Testament, it's a promise. In the New Testament, it's a person. It's Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. And that is the ultimate foundation of our confidence and our hope is that God is with us. He has not abandoned us. And so even as we struggle with our earthly fathers who may or may not be present um, historically or, 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 or right now, even as we struggle as fathers to to do a good job with parenting in general, but being black fathers in particular, it's that presence that matters. And in being present, we're actually modeling the godly fatherhood of our heavenly father um, who who promises whatever we go through. It's not that we're not going to go through. It's not going that we're not going to experience hardship or trouble, but that we're not going to experience it alone. And that's what I think that's a gift that we have to offer is really the only thing we do have to offer uh, because our parenting skills are going to be whack in a lot of ways. <laughs> but what we can do is show up and be there. So, bro, thank you for this. This is this has been good. This has been good. Hope this hope this encourages the people. Yeah. Yeah. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast. 
which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.